God, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, sometimes it seems like uh, things are just normal mundane stuff, and yet, God, you're in the middle of that. Um, sometimes things are incredible, and you're absolutely at the center of that. Um, Lord, we ask right now that you would speak to us in these next few minutes, that you'd speak to us from your word, that you would draw us to you, that we would hear you clearly, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in this series from uh, the book of Psalms called All That Jazz, and if you've been around, you've heard us talk about the fact that jazz music is, is uh, it's different every time. It's authentic, it, uh, it's an expression of what's going on inside you, and Psalms, the Psalms are like that. They're Psalms that express all kinds of different emotions at different times. Last week in Psalm 73, Chris talked about this emotion that's, that's, that's this kind of frustration and discouragement that, that the psalmist says... God, I don't get it. There's all these people who are evil, and it seems like they're being blessed, like they've got all the good stuff. They've got the house and the car and the toys, and all. they get it all, and they're bad people. I don't get it, God. And it's, it wasn't just a reflective kind of thing. It, the, the psalmist really says, God, this is, this is messed up. This is wrong. This is not the way it should be. And there's this sense of frustration that's there in Psalm 73. Ultimately, uh, Chris took us through a process of taking our eyes off other people to looking at our, ourselves, to ultimately looking at God. And that's the path that's there in Psalm 73. Today we're looking at Psalm 51. And, and in order for Psalm 51 to make sense, you've got to kind of understand the backstory. We've talked over the last several weeks about, about uh, a man in the Bible in the Old Testament named David. Um, he was a shepherd as a kid. He was the youngest of seven sons. Um, he was really kind of a nobody that, that lived out in Bethlehem in the, in the hillside until God really kind of plucked him out and said, this is the guy who's going to lead the nation of Israel. He's going to become ultimately the second king of Israel. And, and um, David's the guy who, with the slingshot, killed Goliath, um, that God used in that way. David began, uh, he really kind of began his career as a warrior and, um, and ultimately, ultimately became the king of the nation of Israel. It's, it's kind of like if, if you're one of the people who are like uh, older than, than I, you remember World War II and General Eisenhower coming back after World War II in the country saying, that's the warrior guy that we want to be our next president, that we want him to lead the nation. If you remember back to elementary school, you remember stories about um, uh, George Washington, that he was the general that led the Revolutionary Army and that, that when the government was set up, they said, man, there's no one to be president except George Washington. He's the guy, he's the warrior king of the U.S. Who, David was that kind of a guy, all right? He, uh, he had led the nation in battles. And when you come to Psalm 51, the backstory actually takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And ch chapter 11 starts with this really interesting phrase that's there. Uh, feel free to look it up later, whatever. It says, when, the t when springtime came, the time when kings go off to battle, David sent Joab and his soldiers and the nation of Israel off to war against the Ammonites and the city of Rabah. David, at about the age of 50, somewhere in that time frame, David went from being the warrior king to for some reason stand back in Jerusalem where it was safe, where it was comfortable, and he was no longer on the front lines. For lots of us, 
we go through that process, don't we, where we say, oh man, yeah, I like to live on the edge, live in the middle of the risk, in, in the midst of the risk, like the adventure, but we come to a point and we say, eh, not so much now. I'm going to kind of check out and sit on the sidelines. I think there's a warning for us in that when we begin to look at the story. Because what happens when David's 50 and he's in Jerusalem where everything's safe is he's having conversations, whatever, late one afternoon. He goes for a walk on the, on the roof of his house. We think that that's kind of funny because we think peak roof, think flat roof, almost like a deck on top of his roof. David's the king of Israel, so in Jerusalem, his, his, um, his house is probably the highest place in the city. He can look down over all the city. David's walking late that afternoon up on top, and as he's walking, thinking about kingly things, he sees a flash of skin, and his eyes go, and he sees in the area just outside of his house a woman who's taken a bath. Scripture says that she was beautiful. David had some choices to make at that point. Did he keep watching? Did he follow, you know, what, did he walk away? What was he going to do? And David in um, scripture, scripture just kind of mentions very factually that David came back and said to a messenger, Who's, whose house is that? That one that's right over there. And they said, oh, that's the house of Uriah the Hittite and his wife Bathsheba. You, you know Uriah. He's one of your soldiers. He's actually one of your best soldiers. And David said, oh, yeah, Uriah and Bathsheba. He actually probably knew Bathsheba. She was the granddaughter of one of his advisors. Um, when you look through the scripture, you, you realize that he probably had seen her grow up around his house. She's now a young woman that's beautiful, and he sees her taking a bath. Um, he lets that conversation go, and I think in my mind, I think he's already covering his tracks because he's pursued this vision. His mind has fixated on this, on this woman bathing. He asks a conversation, or he has a conversation with one of his servants, and then it says that he sent some other servants to go ask Bathsheba to come back to his house. If he asked the same person, that'd be pretty obvious, wouldn't it? Who is that person, Bathsheba? Oh, bring her here. He talks to this person and says, who is that? Oh, yeah, Uriah Bathsheba. Talks to these people over here and says, hey, could you go bring Bathsheba to my house? They get her. They bring her back to his house. They sleep together. And that, in David's mind, I think seems to be the end of the story. Bathsheba goes home. Um, that's, we don't hear anything for several weeks, but several weeks later, Bathsheba realizes that she's pregnant with David's child. She writes out a note and sends it to, the, to, to David's house and says, King David, I'm pregnant with your child. And David then begins this process of thinking, okay, what do I do with that? David knew the law. The Mosaic law. If you commit adultery, you were to be killed. You were to be stoned. He knew the law. What were his options at that point? David began the process of a cover-up um, to, to cover his sinfulness. So the first thing that he did was he sends a message to the general out in the field to Joab and says, hey, can you send Uriah to come give me a report of what's going on in the battle? So Uriah comes back to Jerusalem where things are safe and comfortable. He's no longer um, right on the front lines anymore. 
And, and David says, hey, tell me what's going on. How's Joab doing? Uriah says, Joab's doing a great job as a general. The battle's going well. We're there. It's tough. It's really hard, but it's going well. And um, David questions him. Ultimately, he says, hey, Uriah, thanks. You're doing great. We are so grateful that you're serving the nation of Israel. You go home and just enjoy a night with your wife. David's trying to cover his tracks, thinking that if Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba, he, David knows that she's pregnant. In six or seven months, this baby will be born, and Uriah will say, boy, that's, that was a little bit early that the baby came, but he'll think that he's the father. What David didn't realize was that Uriah was a man of tremendous character. And so Uriah leaves David's house and, and uh, with instructions that he's supposed to go home, but instead he sleeps at the, at, the, uh, at the gates to David's house rather than go home. When David calls him in in the morning and says, why didn't you go home? He says, how could I go home and enjoy the pleasures of my, uh, of my house, of good food, of wine, and of my wife, when the Ark of the Covenant the center of God's presence is out in a tent in the field. When my fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents and, and, and their lives are on the line, I can't go home and just enjoy those pleasures. I, that would be a dishonor to God, to the guys that I serve with. Think about what David went through at that point. He's thinking, this isn't good. So David says to him, you know what? I'm going to send you back to the front tomorrow. But come, come have dinner with me tonight. So he, Uriah comes back to his house that night. And David gets him um, so drunk that he believes that Uriah has, really has lost his mind. That he'll go home and sleep with his wife. Sends him home again. And Uriah, his character is so strong that even in the midst of his drunkenness, he doesn't go home to his wife. Instead, he sleeps at the gates. David again, is at a place that he has to determine what's he going to do. Is he going to continue to cover up his sin? How's he going to do that? His plan hasn't worked. His sin is going to be exposed. David writes a note to the general, to Joab, and says, hey, Joab, here's the deal. I want you to, I want you to pursue the fight with the city. Send your best guys there. Put Uriah right on the front lines. And when the battle is at its hottest, I want you to retreat with Uriah at the front line. David, David doesn't say explicitly, kill Uriah, but he lays out the plan by which Uriah will be killed. And then he, this is the thing that kills me. He gives the note to Uriah to give to Joab. The note that seals his fate. And, Ur, and Uriah, in his character, doesn't open the note, doesn't read it takes it, deliver, delivers it to the general, and, the, and General Joab does just what he's been instructed to do. He pursues the battle, puts Uriah out on the front lines. Um, the, they fight back and forth. The Israelites draw back. Uriah's on the front. The archers from the city are able to fire down on him. The swordsmen are there. Uriah, and not just Uriah, but a number of soldiers of the nation of Israel are killed. And David thinks... Okay, I'm in the clear. Word comes back to Bathsheba. Bathsheba that her husband has been killed. And, and uh, 2 Samuel says that she goes into mourning, that she mourns for the, for the appointed time. It's probably seven days that she mourned. And David then takes Bathsheba into his house and marries her. Again, thinking through the process probably, that you know what? 
we're married now. She's going to have a baby. People are going to think the timing's short, but it's all going to be okay. And that's how chapter 11 ends, except with these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12 starts with a, with a, a spiritual advisor coming in to talk to King David, a man named Nathan. Nathan is a guy that David had used. Uh, uh, Nathan was the kind of guy who would come to the king and say, hey, this is going on out in the hinderlands. We need your input on what to do with this. So Nathan comes with this story, and I think that David believed that it was not a fictional story, that it was a real-life story, and he, he tells him this story. He says, David, there are these two guys in this city. One is really, really rich. He has all kinds of flocks and herds. He's got resources out, out the yin-yang. You know, he's a he's, he's wealthy guy. And there's this other guy in the same city that only has one lamb. It's a, it's a ewe lamb. It's a lamb that he bought when it was little. They raised with his kids. His kids grew up feeding this lamb out of their hands, letting the lamb drink from their cups. So the, the, that lamb is, was like a member of the family for this poor man. Um, when, when the lamb would go to sleep, it would put its head down in this man's lap. Um, he loved this lamb. Second uh, Samuel says, like a daughter, which is, which is incredible. So Nathan's telling the story and says, a stranger comes in and, and came to the city, and the rich man was the guy who was going to entertain him. But he didn't want to throw a party using his own resources. So rather than killing one of his flock, one of his herd, the sheep, the goats, the cattle that he had all kinds of, he takes that sheep from the poor man and slaughters it and serves it to this visitor who comes to town. As he tells this story, you can, see, you can see in your mind's eye, David getting more and more agitated. David gets angry, incredibly angry, and says this. He says, as surely as God lives, that rich man deserves to die. He needs to repay the poor man with four lambs because he stole and killed the man's lamb, and because he had no pity. In the midst of, of David's angry response where, where everything is bubbling up inside him, Nathan looks him in the eye and says, David, you are that man. Here's what God says. I made you king over Israel. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you your house and every one of your wives. I gave you the entire country. If that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of God and killed Uriah and taken his wife as if it was no big deal at all? David, you sowed the seed and now it's going to grow. There's going to be fighting in your house from now on. Your own family is going to turn against you. Your wives are going to sleep with men in broad daylight out in public. What you did secretly and tried to cover up I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do back publicly. I'm going to act publicly. And David hears that, doesn't defend himself. He basically um, crumples like a house of cards and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Think about what David experienced when the horrible nature of his sin came to light and he saw what he had done 
in all of its clarity. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that when you, when the light turned on for the first time and you realized that the path that you've been on was a, a path of destruction, that the wake was going to touch hundreds and thousands of people and there was nothing you could do because what you had done was so selfish, so stupid. David, in the, in the aftermath, wrote the words of Psalm 51. If you've got your Bibles, take it out and take a look. Brokenhearted, overwhelmed with guilt and shame, David writes these words. Have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you can be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me, God, with hyssop, with, a, with an herb, and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, God. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Once you've done that, God, I'll, I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'll, I'll, the sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you won't delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you won't despise. Do good to, to Zion in your good pleasure, God. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bowls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51 is a picture of repentance. If you've ever been in a place that you've had that moment of clarity where you've just been overwhelmed with the sinfulness of your sin, Psalm 51 is the place to go. It's the words to be able to use to pray and talk back to God. David didn't just say, oh yeah, Nathan, yeah, you're right, I really messed up, didn't I? Sometimes that's what we do, isn't it? That's our response when sin shows up in our lives. We just kind of say, oh yeah, that's true, I did it. That's not the case with David. Psalm 51 is a picture of repentance. It's a picture of a broken heart that draws us to change lives. David was a wreck. He realized that he had wrecked his life, that he had wrecked the lives of everyone in his family. It wasn't pretty, and it was all his own fault. David had a blind spot. He thought he was invulnerable, and yet he made choice after choice after choice 
to choose sin. We all need a Nathan to help expose sin in our lives. I want to, I want to share just three thoughts, really, from Psalm 51. Um, I, three things that I think you can take with you that are critical for us. The first is this. Sin destroys our relationship with God. Understand, sometimes it's, we think that there's this system of do's and don'ts, the, the system of regulations, the, this legalistic perspective of laws that say, oh, to follow Jesus, this is what you're supposed to do. And if we get out of line, God waxes us and we, and we kind of step back into place. Understand this. Sin destroys our relationship with God. When we sin, it blows up our ability to communicate with Him. It, it separates us in a way that we can't understand unless we see the gravity of our sin. Our relationship with God uh, gets thrown to the rocks. David, David said, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. It's not just that he sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah. It's not just that he had sinned and the, the families of innocent soldiers had died. Families that would be without a dad or a husband. It wasn't just, it wasn't that. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. You know, in the Old Testament, Joseph got this. If you think back to the story of Joseph, you remember that story. Joseph goes to work for Potiphar in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and likes what she sees. She wants to have an adulterous relationship. She wants to have an affair with him. And she, she pursues him. And Joseph says this in Genesis 39. It's an incredible thing. He says, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against the living God? Joseph understood that our sin is not just something that is there and it's a part of our lives, that it separates us from God. Sin isn't funny. Sin's not normal. Sin's not justifiable. Sin kills. Sin may be pleasurable for a time, but it's always destructive. And the destruction far outweighs any temporary pleasure. The punishment, the consequences that come with sin aren't the issue. The broken relationship with God is what is the issue. Sin destroys our relationship with God. The second thing I, wanna, I want you to just grab hold of is this. If David can be forgiven, so can you. No matter what you've done, no matter how far gone you think you are, God can forgive and wants to forgive. Think about what David did. David, God had given David everything. God had given David multiple wives. And yet he said, I want Bathsheba, even though she was married. And after he took Bathsheba, he started this process that ultimately resulted in the death of Uriah. Someone who was loyal to him, who was a tremendous soldier. And David very callously said, yeah, you know what? That's what happens in war. People die. If David can be forgiven as an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, God for, can forgive you as well. Yeah. David, David wanted to take the easy road 
lived the life of comfort. And that put him on the wrong path. David pursued an adulterous relationship. It was planned. It was an intentional sin. It was, it was a path that he knew the result was death. David tried to cover up his sin. David had Uriah killed. David was responsible for the collateral damage. And yet God chose to forgive him and to spare his life. If there's anything that you can walk away with today from this message, it's this. God sent Jesus so that we could experience complete and total forgiveness no matter what we've done. No matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what's in your past. Jesus came to redeem us. He came to fix things. He came to make that relationship with God right all over again. And through him, through his death on the cross, not through any good stuff that you can do, not through any system of works, through, through Jesus, you can experience forgiveness and a fresh start. Third thing is this. If your heart is broken by your sin, you're right where, you, where God wants you to be. If your heart is broken by your sin, you're right where God wants you to be. If your heart isn't broken by your sin, you're missing the boat. David says this, if you wanted sacrifice as a payment for my sin, I'd do it in a heartbeat. David says, I'd, I'd be willing to do anything. I'd kill as many animals as, as were needed. But that's not what you want. The sacrifice that you want, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You want me, God, at rock bottom, reaching up to you, asking for help. You know, in 12-step program, in, in Celebrate Recovery, in AA, in, in SA, in NA, in any of them, the first step is this that a person has to come to a place that they say, I am powerless to overcome my addiction and my life's out of control. David, I think, recognized as Nathan came and talked to him, everything was out of control and he couldn't fix any of it. We somehow think that we have to clean up our messes before our relationship with God can be restored. That we have to somehow have the wherewithal to be able to fix things. We think, you know what, I've got to quit smoking before I can come to Jesus. I've got to get my anger issue under control before I can really allow God into my life. Uh, I've got to get my marriage right. I've got to get my finances right before I can really follow Jesus. That's bunk. Romans 5, Paul in Romans 5 says this, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of your messiest mess, in the midst of everything that could go wrong, every action that you've taken that separated you from God, that blew up that relationship, in the midst of that, Jesus said, I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to make that relationship right. And in Psalm, Psalm 51, it says, joy can return. That bitterness, that anger that despair that's there, God can bring joy back in when there's forgiveness. Today's message, um, it's not really a big happy whoo kind of message, you know? There's hope in it, but it really is an, a, an overt call to repentance. It's a call for all of us as followers of Jesus to get serious and say, you know what, I'm not going to tolerate sin in my life. I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit to come in and, and change the way I think, to change the way I act 
so that I can live the life that God has called me to. It's a call to repentance for overt public sin, for hidden secret sin that's become a part of our life. There are consequences for sin. For David, it caused his family to blow up for the rest of his life. There was a, a, a shipwreck in his life until David died. It's called a repentance because whatever you think is hidden in your life, that sin that you're hiding from others that you think nobody knows about, God says it's going to be exposed. God can see it. He knows that it's there and it's time to repent and let that go to give it back to him. We're going to finish the message today just with a time of prayer. And, uh, and I want to invite you, I want to encourage you, if you're able to, to kneel when we pray. We're going to pray in just a second. Um, uh, why, why kneel? Because it's a, it's a position of humility. It's a postural thing that allows us to say, God, I'm, I'm nothing and you're everything. And, and there's pain involved in that posture, particularly in this facility. The floor is cement. It's not easy. I, the easiest way to do it, I'll tell you if you want to kneel, is to get down on your knees and face back instead of front. And I'm just going to lead us through a time of prayer, okay? A time of, of repentance. If you, want, if, you can't, if you can't kneel, don't worry about that. The important thing is that you pray. But I want to invite you to, to, to just kneel together now as we talk to God. In the quietness, just talk to God and ask God to show you to expose what your secret sin is, what it is that you've been hiding. And just ask him, God, what do, you, what do you want me to do about that? How do you want me to give that back to you? How do you want me to confess it? How do you want me to allow you to come in and clean me? Ask God just now to send you a Nathan. To send someone into your life who can speak truth, his truth, and help you see with clarity what's going on in your life.
talk to God now and, and accept, accept his forgiveness because of Jesus. Talk to him and say, I understand that Jesus went to the cross for me. He died so that that secret sin, so that junk that's in my life could go away. Help me, God, to accept that, to embrace it, to trust you completely, God. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. God, you won't delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. I'd do it. But the sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you won't despise. God, break our hearts and draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray.